John Luchansky, my wife, Rena, here she is in the front row. She probably deserves a round of applause too. She's far more deserving of that than I am. Uh, we, we've been coming here for about three years. Um, really great to be a part of this community. I think just excited to share with you all this morning. This is not my first time doing a sermon. It is my first Sunday morning at the bridge. So with that in mind, I do ask in advance for a little bit of grace from you all. I'm going to be relying pretty heavily on my notes, but that's so that I can communicate uh, where God has been leading me the last few weeks. Uh, and I will also say, too, when Heath asked me to do this a couple of months ago, I pretty quickly said yes, uh, and then remembered that we were in Romans, and was kind of like, well, should I have said yes? Because if any of you have read Romans, had the chance to do it, it's some pretty serious, deep stuff, and Paul clearly had some pretty serious inspiration to get that down on paper uh, to the point where sometimes it frustrates me because clearly he gets it, um, and sometimes I feel like he expects that we'll just get it by reading it. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I have to say that it sunk in as I was preparing that maybe despite the difficulty, despite my temptation to make this more of a popcorn-style reading session than an actual sermon, um, that there is something special about having to rely on God's Word and His wisdom and not my own. Uh, and I think through this, just I'm very thankful for the direction of His Spirit. And as we're in last week, and we'll see often today, the Holy Spirit is a gift from God that He very much wants us to have. And I think what I'm most looking forward to is this particular passage is really encouraging, it's powerful, it's life-giving. And for those who were able to hear Heath's message last, last week on verses 6 through 13, uh, builds on the facts that, that we are objects of God's divine love. And through and in Christ are transformed and experience new life. And through the indwelling of the Spirit, experience freedom and assurance now and in the future. And I'm just really excited to, to walk with you guys through the power of his word and, and particularly three statements of identity that we'll get through as we go through the passage. So before we do jump in, let's just quickly pray and then we'll get to it. God, we love you and we're thankful to be able to gather together to worship you today. And I pray that despite my shortcomings, that your word would speak to all of us and that we would just see and hear what you intend us to and may come to know you more may come to know your character more, and may, may come to know your truths more. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, let's do this. So we are in Romans chapter 8, and today are focusing on verses 14 through 17. So as you turn there with me, note that we do have Bibles under the seats as, as we normally do. Uh, these verses should also be in the Bible app under events and bridge Montrose. And then thanks to the help of Catherine, uh, they should be on the screens behind me as well as we go through it, so you can't miss it. Um, so to start, though, before we get to 14 through 17, I do want to go back to verse 13, which Heath ended on last week, which reads, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Heath did a great job of breaking down this battle between flesh and spirit. And I would say that because we're human, we often fail. Uh, we fall into old sins or bad habits, or maybe we even form new bad habits. Uh, and I think this can be frustrating, especially if you know the promise of the Spirit, because life starts to feel like you're starting, then you're stopping, then you're starting, then you're stopping. I'd say we, we are not hopeless in our humanity. We're not bound or destined to the death that ultimately follows our sin. 
Instead, we're equipped by the Spirit to fight and put to death unkind, unhealthy, and unloving works of the flesh. And it's putting to death the flesh that exactly brings to life the Spirit, with whom comes a twofold promise. First, we have a sense of purpose and freedom here and now in our daily lives because we are restored and renewed through our Savior, and we can live in that grace and forgiveness. And second, we have assurance of future eternity with God. It's exactly this theme of assurance and the ultimate promise of God wanting to spend eternity with us that is throughout Romans 8, but particularly in today's verses 14 through 17, where we will find what's really a beautiful picture of God, not as an inaccessible, distant deity, but as an adoptive father. And uh, I will say before we read the verses that when you hear reference, whether it's from me or from the verses itself, to sons of God, this is inclusive of sons and daughters. Uh, so just keep that in mind in the case that I forget to caveat that. So with that, let's read starting in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So starting with verse 14, for all who, led, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So I'll say it again, we are sons of God, and we should live according to that truth. Again, this builds on last week. If we're led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. We conquer sinful passions by relying on and trusting the Spirit to give us this power to overcome. We're ultimately relinquishing control of the Spirit and allowing Him to guide our lives. So our first statement of identity is that through Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. So what does that actually mean? Because uh, maybe some of you are familiar with the Holy Spirit, maybe you're not. So I, I do want to spend a minute defining who the Holy Spirit is, because I think even if you do have some background on the Trinity and the relationship with God and Jesus, it still is just a confusing concept uh, and, and one that we should spend some time on. So I think first we'll try to identify when do, are we actually introduced to the Spirit as humans. And we find in Ephesians 1.13, it tells us, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So it's in this moment when we accept Christ as our Savior that we immediately receive the Spirit. So that sounds comforting, but what exactly does the Holy Spirit do? How does he have a tangible impact in our lives? Uh, I would say he has many roles, and again, we're going to rely on Scripture to tell us what those are. Uh, those roles principally lead and guide us in what God wants us to do as one of his children. It's actually, we, we get some insight from Jesus himself in John 14, where he says, and this is to his disciples, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So in sum, Jesus describes the spirit here as a helper, comforter, teacher, bringer of peace, guide, and source of conviction. The Spirit is the power by which we can recognize our own sin through our conscience. It's how we can turn from sin. It's how we pray when we don't really know what to say, and it's how we help tell others about our faith. 
Remember specifically that Jesus says here that he will not leave us as orphans. We will be coming back often to this idea of adoption. Clearly, the Spirit does an awful lot on our behalf, but this does not mean that we don't have a role to play, that we can just sit back. We must ourselves read the Bible and pray and actively seek the Spirit to show us this truth and teach us how to live. So I think we have probably a little bit better understanding of who the Spirit is and what it means to be led by Him. So we'll get to the second truth in verse 14 and think through that, what that means, and that is that we are sons of God. And this is a theme that will continue through the rest of the passage. So to, so to do that, let me ask you what you think is characteristic of a father-son or father-daughter relationship. Perhaps we look alike or have similar personalities or dispositions. Perhaps they walk the same way or have the same laugh. They often enjoy the same things as a result of their influence on one another. There are legal elements to it. A father is a guardian, and one day a child may stand in a position to inherit from the father. In terms of the actual relationship, though, my guess is that, as we're thinking about it, that everyone probably has a different answer to that question. And I was reminded of that. I was actually sitting on my porch a couple of weeks ago, and there's a man named David who was walking the neighborhood, and we got to talking, and somehow we got to talking about family history. I would say David is maybe 25 or 30 years old, something like that. And I learned that his father was never a part of his life. He has no idea who his dad is. And to this day, he was telling me that his primary motivation with his own two kids is to be the exact opposite of that, to be ever-present, to pour into their lives. And his story was actually really inspirational, uh, but I could sense that even in adulthood, he was understandably still bitter. He was still angry. Um, and, and maybe some of you have those feelings as well. I came out of that conversation feeling really thankful that I do have a father who has been present and a source of encouragement, and that's really something that I should never, ever, ever take for granted. Uh, I am additionally thankful and perhaps more thankful to have a God who declares to us in 2 Corinthians 6, 18, that I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me. So it's, it's a simple statement, but this is a really great truth for all of us. He is not merely waiting for us and accepting us as children, but he's pursuing us as a father. I'm reminded of my own dad's behavior at my high school cross-country meets. So let me set the stage a little bit. I think a lot of people probably view cross-country meets as a group of runners. They go into the woods, and then 20 to 30 minutes later, they come back out. And that's actually pretty spot on. Uh, <laughs> It is, is really a terrible spectator sport for that reason. But my dad was a great spectator, perhaps because he used to be a runner as well and used that experience. Uh, he, he showed up in some unexpected places. <laughs> I have many memories of him not just waiting at the finish line with the other parents, but actively running back and forth to multiple spots on the course to encourage and to motivate me and my teammates. He had a really good sense of where to be, like maybe at the top of a hill or maybe at a sharp turn in the woods. And again, I'm not real sure how he got there. He's surprisingly mobile for someone who was still in his dress clothes for the day. It got to the point of saying like, hey, why don't you just put on some running shoes and run with us? Because like, we could use the encouragement. I think suffice to say, this kind of support made a difference to me and my teammates. In a very similar way, God does not simply wait for us at the finish line. He pursues us and is there every single step of the way. We actually feel and experience him through his spirit. 
Paul explains exactly this relationship between spirit and and sonship in verses 15 and 16. And to read those again, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's a really stark contrast here between the spirit of slavery, which means living under the law, versus a state of adoption. We do not fall back into fear, which is an allusion to our state prior to having Christ and the Spirit. Under the law, we are often anxious. We worry about living up to a certain standard. We're motivated by fear or failure or possible retribution and punishment. The law is what brings awareness of our sin and reminds us of the penalty of condemnation. And without Christ, we are all in this state, and this is how we tend to lead our lives. If you remember back to Romans 3 and 7, the law isn't in and of itself a bad thing. Paul writes in Romans 3.20 that through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's better to know about it than not know about it. And later in Romans 7 says, by no means is the law sin. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. We know, however, that our righteousness is not achieved through specific adherence to the law or living up to a certain standard, but rather through faith in Christ Jesus. So as a contrast to a life motivated by fear and failure, life with the Spirit is defined very differently by affection, reverence, confidence, things like that. God sends his Spirit as a symbol of sonship. In Galatians 3, 23 to 26, also from Paul, also very similar to the themes we see here in Romans, He summarizes this transition from the spirit of law in flesh to that of adoption. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. We've heard reference to this a few times already, but to explicitly state it, we are adopted sons of daughters and daughters of God, our Father. Remember back in John 14 that we read a few minutes ago that this was part of God's promise to his disciples, that they would not be left as orphans. The concept of an adoptive father is a particularly meaningful reference from Paul because of the practice of adoption specifically in Greek and Roman culture. An adopted child in those times, not unlike today, gained all the rights of a natural child and in many ways, interestingly, was actually more binding than a parent's relationship with a biological child. And the reason for that was that Romans could actually legally give up their biological child if they didn't want it. But if they adopted a child, they did not have that same legal right. They could not turn away. An adopted child was freely chosen by the parents with this idea that they couldn't give him up, just as we are freely chosen by God. And a child in those times immediately gained permanent joint ownership of the family's possessions, something that, again, could not be turned away from legally, as we are immediately granted the spirit. This leads us into the already not yet tension that Heath actually shared last week, that through our acceptance of Christ as Savior, we are adopted into God's family and experience the immediate and ongoing benefits and privileges of that relationship but we are not yet recipients of our greatest gift, our eventual inheritance of eternal life. More on that in verse 17. But before we move forward, uh, as I was preparing this, I thought of a couple of personal experiences that I had seeing this act of adoption firsthand. The first one, 
and Rena's already giving me a look because she knows where this is going. Uh, I found myself in the Chattanooga airport of all places, and apparently Neil knows that airport. As Neil maybe knows, it has three, four gates, something like that. Very small airport. I was there for a wedding. I was coming in from, I think, Dallas for work, and I had friends coming down from Pittsburgh, and they were supposed to pick me up at the airport. I had a lot of time to burn. There was no, I was the only one in the airport. All of a sudden, I see a crowd gathering. They've got balloons, flowers, big signs. I'm kind of starting to wonder, like, hey, what's going on? There's a lot of activity. All of a sudden, I've got nothing better to do. My curiosity took over. So I kind of went, was kind of checking out the signs. Still couldn't quite figure out what was going on. It wasn't anything too descriptive. And then I just heard loud applause, very, very loud applause and, and shouting. And I turned, and there was a family uh, or, or, or a couple that was walking down uh, from one of the gates. I guess they were late getting off one of the planes or something had delayed them. And they were holding a child with them. And I kind of put two and two together that, hey, perhaps they're, they're coming back from having adopted this child. I pretty quickly learned that they had gone to Ethiopia and had indeed adopted uh, a son. And it was really cool because I saw uh, their three natural-born children actually running to greet them. It was a really beautiful scene to take place. But instead of doing the right thing and allowing family and friends to enjoy this moment together, I was perhaps compelled by the moment and got in the greeting line and again, maybe it was because I was tired, maybe it was because I didn't have anything better to do. I really didn't think anything of it. And then when it came to my turn to greet them, I realized that I didn't know them. They didn't know me. I didn't know the baby. The baby didn't know me. And I think I murmured something like, I just think what you're doing is great, and then ran away. But as I turned to run away, I see a news camera with lights turned on and red light blinking. And I got a, a really deep feeling of dread because I was like, man, this clearly was going to end up on the news in Chattanooga, and all these people are really, really excited about it. This is probably big news in this town, and if I'm the one that ends up on the screen, they're going to be very, very mad at a stranger. And fast forward a little bit, we were at a diner that evening, and I was telling my friends this story, and they were kind of like not really believing that I would actually do something like that, like go greet this family. And I was like, oh no, I did it. Um, then the news comes, and my friend goes, oh look, the airport, there it is. And fortunately, the moment of me greeting wasn't what was captured, but there was one particular image where I was kind of walking around the crowd. You could tell I was trying to figure out what was going on. So, so that's one, perhaps a little bit lighter, but there was a second one, uh, perhaps more seriously, that I was also fortunate to experience another time. Uh, and that was part of, in my late high school and early college years, I actually spent uh, three consecutive summers as part of a mission team in San Luis, Mexico. And among various ministries we participated with, we stayed at an orphanage in town that had 30, 40 kids, something like that, from newborn to teenage years. And it was really easy to fall in love with these kids. They're extremely energetic. They're full of love. And I don't think that I was alone on that trip and, you know, my heart breaking for them, knowing that they were left behind, whether because their parents just didn't want them or because they didn't have the means to take care of them. Uh, the third summer I was there, though, I was able to experience firsthand the news of adoption being delivered to one of the girls at the orphanage. Uh, one of the families who had been on a previous trip made the decision to return and actually adopt this girl, who was around 10 years old at the time. And it was, it was an awesome moment, because she was only 10, but you could, you could see the recognition, the glow in her face of what it meant to be loved like a daughter. They could finally, without a doubt, because all the legal stuff was figured out, say it to her, you are going to be our daughter. 
And you could see the hearts of the parents growing as well, knowing the process that they had likely gone through, that they could finally deliver this news to them. I can't help but think of this visual when we were reading verse 15. God's not doing this halfway. He's not allowing us certain access and not full and staying distant from us. He embraces us as full members of his family. And it's a very active relationship because the spirit that he sends us allows us to be aware of our God and recognize the life-changing truths that come with it. We feel it and experience it. And, and Paul references this because in his mind, it leads us to cry out, Abba, Father. And this phrase is intentionally repetitive. Some of you may know this, but Abba is what Jesus called God while on the cross. And it's considered a tender, intimate term in the Hebrew language. So this reference and, and readers at the time, their, their mind would have gone straight back to the cross where our relationship with Christ as Savior and reconciliation with God was made possible in the first place. It's this intimacy that's such a stark contrast to the life of fear we were talking about earlier, the life of loneliness and lack of purpose. This intimacy is instilled in us through the spirit of adoption. And by the way, I know my story of Chattanooga was, it, it is funny, it's ridiculous. Um, but there is something compelling to, to seeing someone being welcomed into a family. You don't have to think a whole lot to be attracted to that scene. You just want to be a part of it. Uh, so, so keep thinking of that because we're going to further develop the Spirit's role in our relationship with God, uh, where verse 16 demonstrates the completeness of God's design for this relationship. So God sends the Spirit, and then the Spirit himself bears witness with ours that we are his children. The phrase bears witness is one that confirms and assures our status. Think of, you know, think of a courtroom scene where perhaps your attorney would be bearing witness for you. In this case, the spirit is bearing witness with you. I almost imagine him sitting on the bench with you, advocating exactly on your behalf, not necessarily just for you or for a victory. There's a really strong picture here. It is a fact actually, that, that Paul repeatedly asserts in multiple letters, not just Romans. So we see in 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So again, I think of that courtroom scene, it'd be pretty easy to go through a trial if you were guaranteed that you were going to win. 1 John 2.27 says, the anointing you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So again, go back to that courtroom. We actually wouldn't even need to prepare. He's going to do everything for us. And on top of that, we don't need to feel guilty about our defense because we know that it's truth, an absolute truth at that. It's this exact sound and complete logic that Paul writes with throughout Romans. And it's why I said earlier there are times where I struggle to comprehend the depth of Romans because clearly this logic is easy for Paul, but maybe not as easy for the rest of us. So maybe just to step back before we move forward, if we follow Paul's logic, we've spent the last three verses seeing Paul confidently define us as children of God. And then we step forward into verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And it's in verse 17 that this theme of our insurance is nowhere more clearly demonstrated because we have inheritance alongside Christ. And that's our third statement of identity, that we are co-heirs with Christ. 
This is somewhat of an absurd statement to me because it feels very, very undeserved that we would be on par with Jesus, who is the one that sacrificed himself for us. But we see in his word that children of God have the inheritance of eternal life. By definition, if you're possessing something by inheritance, it's more secure than simply buying it or maybe it being presented as a gift. It is a gift, for sure, but it's also a right and a, and a certainty. That's where inheritance makes a difference. We have a claim in and through Christ to this promise. So what specifically is the promise, and how do we know that God keeps his promises? So again, we can say confidently from this word that we are co-heirs with Christ. This means we are promised what Christ was promised. So we actually get some insights into what these promises are from Jesus himself. In Luke 22, I think it's 29 and 30, he tells his disciples, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Separately, in the parable of the talents, those men who took the gifts of their master and worked faithfully to use and grow those gifts were rewarded being told, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And finally, we see in Revelations 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. All of these are promises of inheriting an entire kingdom. We're not deserving of this in and of ourselves, but because God views us as his children, he promises us accordingly. That is a great and honestly somewhat overwhelming truth. And again, we're viewed on the same level as the one who sacrificed himself for us. So we're told pretty explicitly what God's promises are for us, but can we have confidence that he fulfills them? Can we have confidence in this message? I would argue yes, because we see a thread of redemption throughout history, meaning it was God's design and plan for us since day one. The purpose of the picture of Israel in the Old Testament was exactly to show God's plan of redemption for his people. We serve the same God who delivered Abraham to the promised land in the first place, who later delivered the Israelites back to the promised land after their time of exile, and then later sent his one and only son to die for us so that we could be called sons of God. Just as God in the first covenant promised Abraham that he would be a father of great people in exchange for Abraham's obedience, we are part of a new covenant and a new promise, but along the same lines. Hebrews 9.15 reads, he, meaning Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then Galatians 3.29 reads, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's, heirs according to his promise, his being God. This assurance that we are co-heirs with Christ is a tremendous gift. Paul is purposeful, though, in verse 17, to remind us that this gift, while so, so generous and beyond our human comprehension, it still is not free. 
we see this phrase, provided we suffer. With that in mind, we must count the cost around our decision, knowing that at times, suffering is in store for us as it was for Jesus. To share in Christ's glory, we must share in his suffering. I'd say, for example, we might be subject to misunderstandings, opposition, maybe even scorn for those who don't share these beliefs. Important relationships that we value a lot could become strained. I would say a little bit differently, our hearts will break for others as Jesus's did. We are human and we're not perfect and our flesh will sometimes rule us. We are called to confront the brokenness in the world and as we open ourselves up to this brokenness, poverty, sickness, bitterness, depression, loneliness, whether in ourselves or others, we will see and do things that are not easy and this will lead to us suffering. This is part of a relationship with Christ. To be clear though, this is not saying that we need to go out and intentionally suffer when we make a decision to follow God. I would say instead we see that when our heart is replaced with and transformed by the heart of Jesus, it is more often broken for others. And because of that, we feel pain and sorrow. This is a big part of the suffering that Paul is referring to. Peter refers to a similar process uh, in 1 Peter, where he says that we will be grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. So the tested genuineness of our faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor. This process of refinement is, is constantly ongoing in our lives. It begins with a bold choice that we make to enter into a relationship with Christ. In this decision, we are turning from our flesh, giving up and sacrificing things that used to bring us joy and pleasure and we're turning toward a life guided by his spirit. This full change in identity likely takes our entire lifetime to more fully understand it's an ongoing process. Importantly though, we can run this race knowing the gift that awaits us. As Heath will continue next week with Romans 8, 18 and beyond, we see that, and, and again this reminds me of the first Peter verse, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This promise of sharing his kingdom and glory is awesome. And I would say that as we're sitting here today, eternal life may not logically seem to be anywhere close to in front of us. It may seem distant, but it is promised to us, and we can be confident that God keeps his promises. More fully, we are heirs of not only these promises, but of God himself. We can experience him here and now. It is not a lifetime of waiting for one final promise to be given to us, but it's through his spirit we are able to experience fullness of joy here on earth. I tried to use a lot of scripture to point out that there's material scriptural foundation for the assurance of our salvation. We can trust God as our Father because he sacrificed for us what was most dear to him so that we may share in this inheritance of eternal life. Remember back to the image of my dad at the cross-country race. God's at the beginning. He creates in us a desire for relationship and yearning for life at that beginning. He's at the end, waiting to welcome us to our eternal home. And he's everywhere in between, 
walking and running with us, giving us the Spirit as a guide, comfort, and assurer. Simply put, He has chosen us, and He has chosen to be with us. Paul in Romans, specifically, has painted a picture of what it means to be adopted by God and to be heirs. There is truth in these words, in these scriptures, but also point out there is truth in our human emotions and feelings, in part because they're given to us by the Spirit. I point out as an example, and I'm, I'm looking across the room here, this church is blessed to have many beautiful children, and I see a lot of parents in the room who are raising those beautiful children. Those of you who are parents or who just happen to know these kids, take a minute to think about how much you love them. Then consider that God loves you in the exact same way. It's deep, it's indescribable, it's sacrificial. Knowing what you would do for these kids as a result of your love, consider the reality of God's promises in this context. I actually do want to point out one specific family who I think this message really applies to, which is the Janots who are not here today, but uh, I'm thankful that they're letting me share some of this. So they, to me, are a great example of showing God's love to their children, both Jack and Sean. They have lovingly and sacrificially taken Sean in as a foster child, providing all the things to him that they provide to Jack. And they do a tremendous job caring for them exactly as their son. As a foster child, though, Sean is not an heir. He's just not. He just doesn't have that legal relationship. God goes beyond simply providing for us. He adopts us into his family, and in doing so, we become heirs. By the way, Matt and Allie are taking steps to officially adopt Sean, and when they hopefully come to that moment, their relationship will be different not because they're going to do anything more for Sean. They already do a lot for everything for him. But as an adopted child, he will be an heir. This consummates his position. He has standing and rights in the family. This is a powerful and profound relationship. This is exactly the relationship that God wants with us. The final thing I'll say is this. God's great promises are in front of us and available. There is a step of faith that we must take that's fundamental to a commitment on our side to this relationship. If you've not believed in Christ and accepted adoption, would you take that step of faith for the first time today? And if you are a Christian and made that confession that you need Jesus, who is God calling you to bring alongside as co-heirs? Who do you want to share in this promise? We must pray often that our hearts and minds turn toward him leading our lives with Christ and his spirit at our center. I pray that we may all grow more aware of the love of the Father and be transformed by his spirit, knowing that, as we learn from Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you would pray with me. God, we're just uh, so thankful for who you are, that you are, our Father, that you've adopted us as your sons and that we are co-heirs with Christ and that we share in the promise of inheritance of eternal life. And we're also thankful for your spirit that today, here and now, we can experience your love, that we can experience these feelings of joy and confidence. And We just pray specifically for this community that our eyes and ears would turn toward you and that we would 
every day come to know you better and so that we may be uh, transformed and so that we may bring others to know the same promise. In your name we pray. Amen.